Lori Lee never thought she'd be an organ donor, but she had an epiphany after an organ donation saved her father's life. When you're gifted with something like that, you have the option to say thank you and go on with life, or you can keep the gift going. And I feel that keeping the gift going is something that if you can do it, you should. That's Lori Lee, an organ donor, documentary filmmaker, and now organ transplant advocate. I'm Marian Shuck, your host for Let's Talk Hope, a podcast devoted to sharing stories and turning tragedies into triumphs. It is a pleasure to have you here, Lori Lee. Thank you for coming. So today we want to talk a little bit about your organ donation experience, not only from your journey, but from your father's journey as well. And can you tell us a little bit about your story? Absolutely. Today is actually a really special day to be featured on your podcast because 11 years ago today, my dad received a life-saving liver transplant from a deceased donor. He had liver cancer. He was never sick from the liver cancer, but once they saw it, they said it's the type of cancer that will grow quickly and the only and best solution is for curing it is a liver transplant. So we were on the wait list for about a year. We were called in four times over that year. Every time was on a holiday. (laughs) And each time we were sent home because for some reason or another, it wasn't a good liver match. He finally did get his transplant, like I said, 11 years ago today. When that happened, and especially on days like today, I think about your podcast and I think about the people who talk about that really difficult decision they made to donate their loved one's organs. I think about how the day was one of relief for us that we finally, you know, the end, the the end to the wait had, had come, but I think about the family and that they were having the worst day of their life. And the gratitude I feel for our donor family is just hugely immense. Oh, definitely. And Lori, can you Tell us just a little bit, because I've worked at Gift Co. for 13 years, and we've we've dealt with all types of scenarios that happen with organ and tissue donation. But you say your dad had active cancer, and um, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions out there about who can get a an organ, what type of health challenges you can and you can't have. Can you tell us what that journey was like with your dad who had active cancer and how he was able to get on the wait list and to eventually receive a life-saving organ. Sure. So his story starts 20 years ago. So in the early 2000s, he passed out on an airplane and they had to do an emergency landing. He had passed out because of an ulcer, but in doing a scan of his body, they saw a teeny tiny little spot on his liver. And they said, if slash when this dot becomes a little bit bigger, you're going to need to consider liver transplant because if there's more spots or if it grows quickly, you won't be eligible for a transplant. So he made some lifestyle changes at that point, became a little bit healthier. He was really healthy to begin with, but became even healthier. 10 years later, that spot did get a little bit bigger. Even though I had been told 10 years prior that in the event it was going to get bigger, he would need a liver transplant. When it actually happened, it was like I was hearing it for the first time. Like, what do you mean? And it was very scary. We were so lucky to have other people to go through the process with, like another person who was a few steps ahead of him in receiving a liver. So we had 
Her name was Janelle. We had Janelle to learn from. We had the amazing team at Northwestern, and we just got the best possible care that you could ask for during that difficult time. And what was it like, Lori, when you received the phone call? The final phone call that this was actually going to happen, and you mentioned that you know it was a, a, a solemn day and a and day in that you had to think about the donor. What was it like to know that your dad was finally going to receive his liver and that he was going to be with you for so much longer? It was a relief. Um, I'd say that was the number one feeling, but then then there's the fear. I mean, it's a very major surgery. And he wasn't a spring chicken. So it's just knowing that, okay, for the next 48 hours, things are going to be touch and go. We're going to be awake. We're going to be at the hospital on those uncomfortable chairs that are are made for people to not sleep on in the waiting room. But knowing that he had the care that he did. And at that point, we'd we'd really gotten to know his team of surgeons. And I felt 100% confident that he was in, in really good hands. And I just, I just wanted to get it over with and get to the next part. I think we all did. Absolutely. And so that's another myth and misconception that people, um, you mentioned your dad wasn't a spring chicken. And can I ask his age? Because a lot of people say, oh, well, you can't receive an organ if you're over this age. And, you know, older people um, just, you know, we sacrifice for the younger people. Can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about the healing and the recovery time for your dad? Yeah. So he was 61, I believe, at the time of transplant. So he's 72 now. And he was in a position where it wasn't like he needed the liver today. Otherwise, he wasn't going to be okay. So we did have the benefit of being able to wait for the perfect liver. Some people don't have that opportunity, and we're we're really lucky that we did. His recovery afterwards... you know, For two weeks, it was tough. At one point, he did have to go back to the hospital because you know, he wasn't digesting food the way he was supposed to. Um, And he was in a lot of pain, probably gas pain. A lot of people talk about the gas pain they get afterwards. He wasn't very motivated to get up and move around. So my mom and my sister and I would, would make him get up to get his English muffin and stuff like that. But he did very, very well. And he has the mindset of this is a fixable problem. We're going to fix it and I'm going to move on. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, 30 days after his transplant, Life was totally back to normal for him. One of the parts that was difficult for me as one of his primary caretakers was the pills. I mean, you are on so many pills after you get a transplant and you're tired. It's like, okay, this one you take before food, this one you take after food, this one's four times a day, this one's two times a day. So I do remember putting the pill selection together with my mom and thinking, God, this is complicated. I also remember we had to take his blood sugar. And we couldn't get the little finger pricker to work. (laughs) And I just remember (laughs) thinking, I don't feel like the most qualified person to be doing these things. But he recovered like a champ. And within a few months of recovering, we started a nonprofit organization uh, affiliated with Northwestern called Transplant Village. And the goal was to help the next guy like him coming through the system so that people don't feel alone and people have access to the resources they need to do this in a way that's that's not so stressful because it is a stressful situation to go through. Oh, definitely. And it's great that you mentioned Transplant Village. Gift of Hope has always been a partner with Transplant Village. For at least three years, we've done the, the Magnificent Mile Parade as a partner with the Transplant Village. So I'm always happy 
to work with them and see how the patients are doing and just being able to give back. But your story doesn't just stop with your dad and his liver transplant. Tell us about your advocacy and what motivated you to be a non-directed donor. Sure. So when we started Transplant Village, we would sit around a table at Northwestern and our village was comprised of mostly organ recipients, but a few organ donors. And the concept of living donation became very everyday to me. Like we would joke that I was the only person at the table with all my organs. (laughs) (laughs) And it was actually a few years later where I was in a place in life where I could leave work for more than two weeks and things wouldn't explode, where I thought, you know, I could and I should do this. Like I said, our donor family did something to leave a lasting legacy. And I think when you're gifted with something like that, you have the option to say thank you and go on with life, or you can keep the gift going. And I feel that keeping the gift going is something that if you can do it, you should. And um, it was Megan Craig at the National Kidney Foundation who I talked to as is kind of like my first contact with another living donor. And she was in her early 20s at the time. She just flew through her donation. I mean, she made it sound like this is no big deal. You're going to be running again two weeks after you donate. It was talking to her where I was like, I'm, I'm definitely going to do this. I told my family they were 200% supportive and I moved forward with the donation. It started a six-person transplant chain. So six people benefited from me being a catalyst to this. And it was just rewarding. I felt like it was a beautiful way to thank our donor family, even though they have no idea who we are or that we've gone into advocacy work with living donation. And, you know, I think people want to do things like this. And organ donation to me is something where I see everyday people do this all the time. You don't have to be this, you know, you're not this big hero. It's just being kind and passing on a resource to somebody that they desperately need. It's something you can do without power, without a ton of extra time, and without money. Oftentimes, I think those are the things that get in the way of of making a big boom in the world. And this is something you can do, you know, without those things, which makes it really special to me. Yes, it's really about creating a lasting legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? It's very interesting that you mentioned starting a sixth chain. But when you talk about the donor family for your dad's liver transplant, had you ever been able to like write the family and let them know that your dad was doing okay? Have you heard from them? That's a good question. So he does not know his donor family, and I do not know my recipient. We did write the donor family two times over a period of a few years. We haven't heard back, and I know that could be for a lot of different reasons, but there's still somebody that we think about a lot. And on a day like today where, you know, I was just casually texting with my dad this morning, I just feel so grateful to them that that they gave this gift to me to be able to have my dad around into my adult life. Yes, it's so interesting when you think about the little things, you know, the little things in these 11 years that your dad has been able to continue to do or continue to see. I know sometimes that donor families, to your point, you know, they don't write for a myriad of reasons, but just be patient. One day they will. 
I would love for them to hear how amazing you and your dad are and just this advocacy from the transplant village, but also your advocacy in being able to be a non-directed donor. And so can you tell us a little bit about what that means to you in terms of how you help people and how you pay it forward? It's kind of a long answer, but there's four major things that I'm doing in the line of advocacy. The first and the one that is super exciting to me is I'm creating um, a documentary. It's called Crowdsource for Life. It features stories of non-directed donors like me. And we have a cast of 18 donors, 17 who donated to strangers like I did. And they're telling different aspects of their donation story. So it's not a process that they're explaining. It's it's the underlying themes of things like kindness or overcoming grief or donation being a valuable way to give life without having a baby. First person storytelling is the most fundamental way that people connect. So Storytellers know that by sharing their experiences and perspectives, listeners can relate to their experience and understand fundamentally that they're not alone. And we see social mediums like Facebook, they make telling or portraying personal stories easy, which is why so many living kidney donors, in my experience, share the common story that their journey of donation started by seeing someone's need for a kidney on Facebook. By focusing on these stories of human experience first, then connecting those experiences to living kidney donation, the living donation message can finally be broken out of the small industry niche that you and I know so well and into a mass audience with the numbers and capability to save lives through living kidney donation on a mass scale. And I have a podcast for living donation. It's called Donor Diaries. But Perhaps your podcast and my podcast could be an example of what I'm talking about. A lot of people who listen to your podcast and my podcast are already invested in the concept of organ donation, whether it's because somebody they loved donated an organ or somebody received one. And what we're trying to do with this documentary is get the message out there to the people who don't care about it yet because they're not connected to the topic. And Donor Diaries is my podcast, and that was created to support Crowdsource for Life. And it's about the beauty and messiness of living organ donations. It's stories about what happens when people decide to share their organs. It shares unfiltered stories of kidney donation through the voices of both living donors, but also has straight talk from transplant experts like you, who are committed to bringing the conversation of living organ donation to the forefront of our society. So people don't have to wait or to die or suffer while they're waiting for a transplant. In that podcast, we've covered topics such as how to ask someone for a kidney, um, the racial disparity issue in the transplant world, donor disincentives, donor protections, various stories from living donors. That is so incredible. And thank you for doing that. Because as you know, there are still a lot of movies and uh, misconceptions and even some podcasts, I think. But there's a lot of misinformation about organ donation, about living donation. And so our podcasts are really a catalyst for really, to your point, putting information in people's hands. That is the truth. And so I'd be delighted to support and, and, and work with you on your podcast as well as, you know, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. But it really is an opportunity to showcase 
the truth about organ, eye, and tissue donation and living donation and, you know, non-directed donation and directed donation. Because as you know, even if, you know, you're an organ donor and you have someone in your family or someone you know that needs an organ and you have a deceased loved one, you can direct donation to them as well. So all of these areas for being able to really understand the process of donation, because I think a lot of folks don't understand the process of living donation. So your podcast is going to go a long way in helping people understand that. As you mentioned, you know, how do you ask? Because as you know, a lot of people will not ask people in their families. No, no, that's such a hard barrier for some people to get past. And I love what you said, too, about, you know, the need for people to understand living donation. And the way I see it, Marianne, people like you and me need to work together. We both are trying to address the same problem, but there's not one solution to this problem. With over 100,000 people on the wait list and only 54% of Americans being signed up to be a donor upon death, we need to look at both how can we get more people to become donors when they die, but also how can we get more people to feel compelled to want to donate when they're alive? Because only by addressing both of those things are we ever going to shorten or hopefully eliminate the transplant wait list. Absolutely, Lori. And I will tell you, not only as a woman of color, uh, as someone who's grown up with family members, particularly my grandparents, not believing in organ and tissue donation. I remember when I started working at Gift of Hope 13 years ago when my <laughs> grandfather was alive, he was like, gal, what are you doing? Be careful and- <laughs> over there. <laughs> yes. But also now as an adult who has a brother who has kidney disease and uh, my sister and I, I have a twin, my sister and I are going to be tested to see if we can be his living donor. It's it's challenging because he's he and our younger sister are A's and my twin and I are O's. So we're going through a lot of testing um, to make sure that we're compatible. But, you know, I can clearly see that we might have to be in a, in, in a chain, right? We might be able to, if we're not compatible, to be able to support him getting his kidney. And we're hoping to have it done by September because he and I go to the U.S. Open. So you've got plans. Yes, we have plans. (laughs) But it was one of those things, Lori, where he just woke up and had undiagnosed hypertension and which led to kidney failure. And so it is very important that we work synergistically, seamlessly, integrated to really share all of these messaging points to help people understand all of the options that they have available. And what a gift to him that he has a daughter who's an expert in this field. I mean, that's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, you know, as a sister, um, he we were going to our nephew's first NFL football game. We all met up in Miami and he didn't show up. And so we were going crazy and we were calling like, where are you? And he was on emergency dialysis while we were all in Miami. So imagine... One, the anger that he would do this alone, but two, he really didn't think about what this meant, didn't use his resources. And so if we can just, you and I work together and other people work together to really help people understand what options are, what resources are there, I think that will be an incredible opportunity for the people who are on the waiting list. 
I agree. Can I ask you a question? Sure. How would you feel if you don't donate directly to him, but to somebody else and do a swap? We would be fine. My sisters, my sister and I have talked about it. I have uh, three sisters. There were actually five of us, but um, I have three sisters. You know, we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that he gets a kidney. And to your point earlier, a lot of people don't have that option. They don't have those people in their corners who are willing to do that. But also, I'm a donor family in terms of I lost my husband two and a half years ago. Actually, it would be three years in June. And so he was a, a tissue donor. So not only do I work at the Gift of Hope, I, you know, talk the talk, but now I walk the walk. <laughs> and now I'll be able to either walk the walk as a uh, living uh, donor, but just really to understand all the nuances and the facets and just the awesome power that we have to be able to save and enhance someone else's life. Absolutely. And I think I get why some people don't immediately love the idea of donating to somebody else. Like they want to save their father or their brother or their sister, right? But what what I think is cool is if you can do that and help another stranger. And that's one of the neat things about doing a swap is that someone in your family might have that opportunity, you know, to get your dad the best possible kidney, but then to also save somebody totally unrelated to your family who's desperately in need. It's pretty beautiful. Lori, when I started out at Gift of Hope, I started out in HR, but then I moved over to community outreach. And one of the things that I would ask when I would go to churches, when I would go to community centers is, if you had a chance to save someone else's life, would you? Simple question. Simple question. As we talk about people who are strong in their faith, people who who believe in supporting their neighbors, that's a very simple question. So to answer your question, I would be fine with it because at the end of the day, my brother would be getting a kidney, somebody else would be getting a kidney, but we would be saving two lives, right? And we would be enhancing two lives because to your point, I think just the grace that you have in being a living donor and what it's meant so much to your advocacy, I think is very important. And I think you being here today has just been tremendous to say, you know, your dad has survived for 11 years. You've had so many more memories with him. And then you turned into an advocate and donated yourself. How awesome. Thank you. I'm on the board of the National Kidney Donation Organization. Mm -hmm. And our goal there is to make sure that when people do decide to step forward to donate, that they're doing it in the safest way possible with the maximized donor protections. You know, donors tend to be really nice people. So I think they often don't speak up when donating an organ is costing them something financially, like, oh, I have to travel to Florida and spend the night at a hotel. You know, they just want to help somebody, somebody they love in most cases. And so they don't necessarily know that they should be looking for donor protections. And nobody should pay a penny if they decide to give the gift of life. And there's ways to make sure that donors can do it safely and can do it in a way that they're very protected with things like life insurance and to know that they're going to get paid time off work. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's something in our country I think we need to work on. We, we need to make it easier for people to gain access to those protections. And it needs to be addressed with them like, hey, here's how we're going to help you get through this safely, responsibly and without coming out behind um, versus waiting for them to speak up and ask for that type of help. 
Well, Lori, thank you so much for being here today. I've learned a lot. I hope our audience learns a lot just about living donation. It's not something that we talk about often. Uh, And even for OPOs, we didn't talk about it a lot, but our work with the Transplant Village, our work with our transplant centers, we have now put resources up on our website for living donation. Uh, And I hope that through conversations like these that we continue to open the dialogue for people to really get the information that they need to be a strong advocate like you were for your father, but also for someone you didn't even know. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Hope. We encourage you to start the conversation about organ and tissue donation today with your loved ones and make your wishes known. You can register to become a donor on giftofhope.org. Hello, Tina Montgomery, Supervisor Community Outreach. In my role, I'm responsible for raising awareness and educating the community about organ, eye, and tissue donation. Daily, I'm asked a lot of questions about the donation process and how it works. So we've put them all on a wheel and that would give it a good spin and answer some questions from the audience. So here we go. That's a great big spin. It's question number three. Great. The question is, my religious beliefs don't support organ donation. This is a very great question. Most major religions in the U.S. support donation as a final act of compassion and generosity. In the United States, there are more than 100,000 people waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. Given the gift of life is a very personal decision, one factor that might affect your decision is your faith. Some religions have passed resolutions or adopted positions that encourage people to seriously consider donation and plan accordingly. If you have further questions about your religion and donation, please speak with your faith leader for more guidance. Thank you again for that wonderful question. We're going to put more questions up on the wheel and spin them again during the next episode. So thank you all so much for learning more about Donation Facts. If you like what you've heard today, we hope that you will listen again wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Let's Talk Hope was produced by Rivet, and if you'd like to hear more great podcasts, please visit rivet360.com.